Hey, you kids, hush up. Can't you hear Marvin's own? Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to Say It Loud. My name is Marvin Franklin, your host. Thanks so much for taking time to listen today. I am completely aware that time is our most valuable, unrenewable resource. You taking time out to share a moment with me and listen uh, to me and my guest, William Phillips, today means the world to me. Because of you, this podcast is available on eight different platforms, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Apple Podcast, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Depending on how you are listening today, there are multiple options to help us get this message out to a broader audience. It all begins with a simple like, follow, or subscribe subscription to this show. When you do that, it makes it easier, easier for others to find Say It Loud. Please feel free to send me a little note. On Anchor, you can record a message. I am now posting them uh, to the episodes. Therefore, I'm always looking forward to the feedback. Apple Podcasts, uh, you're able to review. You can go ahead and hook me up with five stars and a nice word or two. I am elated to have Mr. William Phillips, the CEO and president of PIE Management with us today. He has graciously agreed to talk with us a little bit more about his career and passion, as well as chat about a piece from David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Mr. William Phillips is a graduate of Delaware State University. He played basketball there, so he was a student athlete. Afterwards, he went on to pursue his law degree from the University of Minnesota. Go Golden Gophers! Yes, sir. <laughs> His professional career began as an associate lawyer with Miller Canfield for five years in Detroit, then went on to practice business law, venture capital law, multiple finance, municipal finance and sports law at Pepper Hamilton LLP for seven years before he finally decided to open his own practice in 08. W.A. Phillips and Associates PLC, focusing on contract negotiations, marketing, and endorsements for athletes and coaches. He is now the president and CEO of PIE Management LLC, which is a professional service provider which assists municipalities, universities, and private companies throughout North America with staffing, call center, and payment processing solutions. PIE Management LLC, named by ICIC as the 40th fastest growing company in under-resourced communities. He is also a proud graduate of the Cass Technical High School in Detroit. And I say the Cass Technical High School in Detroit because that's where I met uh, Mr. Phillips. We played basketball together. 
many, many moons ago. That, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. How you doing today? I'm good. You, you should say I'm a very proud grad of the Cast Tech High School in Detroit. Yes. So, I, I man, uh, wonderful things about you and your career up to this point. So I want to go ahead and ask, uh, I know you play basketball in, in college. Uh, what was your major in undergrad? My major in undergrad uh, at Delaware State was uh, business uh, with an emphasis in marketing. Uh, one of the things that was fortunate for me was that I actually transferred into Delaware State after spending a year at Youngstown. And so I had an extra year of eligibility after I graduated. Uh, thus, my coach uh, graciously uh, decided to pay for my grad school as well. So I was able to uh, get an MBA while I was there as well. Oh, that's awesome! So, did you? How soon did you know you wanted to go to law school? Did you know law school right out of high school? No, um, actually, I, uh, law school um, was a decision that I made after uh, studying um, successful, I believe, corporate people um, like Reginald Lewis. Um, I read his book "Why Should Black Guys Have All the Fun," um, <laughs> and I saw that he went to law school. And then I looked at. Um, um, Adam, um, Chenault, Kenneth Chenault over at American Express, who was the president of yes. American Express for a long time. And I saw that he went to law school. And then I looked at Dick Parsons, who was the president of Time Warner. Um, and I saw that he went to law school. So I was seeing all these African-American men who um, were doing, um, who were very successful um, in, their, in their business careers or in business. Um, going to law school initially, and I thought that, you know, law school would be my path to be able to launch, you know, my business career as well. I thought I would do like they did, which is go to a law firm, work a few years, and then be discovered by one of our clients, and go out and work for them. I I took a different path, but um, nonetheless, um, you know, graduating from law school and and being able to work at a, a major firm was definitely a good launching pad for me. So the first thing I was thinking, so like when you did decide, did you think that you were going to be like a big sports agent? Was that part of it too? Did You know, I know you were yeah, around yeah, a lot I, of hoopers. I did, I did, but that came about because I had, I, I, was, I was blessed with that at, while at Delaware State. I had the only, Emmanuel uh, Davis was my teammate. And Emmanuel Davis is the only graduate from Delaware State that I know of. Um, that um, actually played in the NBA. And um, when he was, um, and, and, and Tom Davis, another person on our team, Tom Davis is still the all-time leading scorer for the MEAC mm-hmm. and, and, and our school. And so when, when playing with those two guys, they started to, to be um, reviewed by various NBA teams, but they also started to be recruited by agents. And Emmanuel would bring a lot of the information that the agents would send to him down to my room and say, hey, Bill, take a look at this and tell me what you think. And, you know, after reviewing a certain number of them, I said, well, I could do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, going to law school was also motivated by that as well. I just knew that law was... Um, I just, well, I just believed that law was my path to 
either, you know, being able to be successful in either business or being successful as an agent. And, and, and so I just pursued both uh, by going to law school. So I'm going to go ahead. This is off script a little bit, but I'm going to ask because I just I have to know. So being someone who played with Coach Spivey, and you played at Youngstown State and Delaware State. Who was it more difficult to play for? Was was Coach Five one of the more challenging coaches, or or did the other well, coaches? Of course, it was no. It was, it, it, I, I played for many coaches. <laughs> coach Five was by far the, the hardest coach I ever had to play for. Yes. But, you know, one thing that Coach Five taught me um, is the importance of preparation. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that, you know, we, we had some ups and downs at Cavs and everything, but every big game we won. Mm-hmm. Because Spy prepared us so well for those big games. Yeah. yeah. And you knew going in all week that this was a big game because he, he emphasized certain things so much. And so, you know, you say what you want about the and you know, his actions and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, didn't bother me. It was tough, but it didn't bother me. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the one thing I learned about from Spive was the importance of preparation. Yeah, I think for me, I think for me, Coach Spivey taught me, you know, personal resolve. You know, so I, I definitely say he was the toughest coach that I ever played for, but. He definitely, I think you could take him one way or the other, but for me, I think it, it definitely made me look at my own self-esteem, and I knew that I had to get all of that from within because you weren't going to get it from Coach Spivey. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, now, 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 that's one thing Spivey absolutely did. He toughened you up now. I mean, you couldn't be soft and play for Spivey. No. That, that, that was impossible. But, again, if anything I took away from Spivey, that it was it was it was the importance of preparation and how preparation can um, impact success. Yes, absolutely. Did you did you end up playing for? I can't remember. It's been so long. The last year, did you play for uh, Brenda Gatlin or Despite? Yeah, I played for her my junior year. I mean, I played for so many coaches um, in at Cass Tech. I actually played for Coach Spivey started uh, then. Um, after Coach Spivey, we had uh, Coach Moore, I believe. Yes, second. yes. And then after Coach Moore, we had Coach Gatlin. And then in between Coach Gatlin, uh, we had Coach uh, 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 Coach Shannon, who was the athletic yes, coach. Yes, yes. And then at the end, we had Coach Wynn. So was that five coaches? Yes, yes. Yeah, so we had, we had a lot of coaches um, after um, – Including Spivey, but after Spivey um, left, and, and and if I had, if we had five coaches, four of those coaches were over the my junior and senior year because Spivey mm-hmm. was our coach my freshman and sophomore year. And yes, then, um, Dr. Wheatley decided that we needed to go in a different direction. With that. Correct, correct. So yes. I, I just I needed to you know get off topic just for a minute because as I was thinking about look listening to you talk it just brought back some memories of, of being in that gym with the track on the top and oh, yeah. and those early morning practices and and oh, pr- yeah. practice uh 
You know, we had, I think we had one practice where we had to run down through Brewster Projects or something. Something was oh, yeah. going on. <laughs> you remember all of that, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had to run cross country and everything. I mean, it's Bobby, Bobby, you know, he taught us a lot of lessons. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't regret playing for Spivey. I don't I, either. I actually, I actually um, am thankful to be able to be coached by, by Spy because, again, you know, it's just life lessons. I mean, it wasn't easy. No. And, 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 and um, I don't think that, that people should make things easy automatically for folks. I think that people should have to go through a little bit in order to understand that, you know, in life there's going to be difficult times, there's going to be challenges, there's going to be things that aren't fair. Um, there's going to be a lot of things, but you got to push through it. you got to push you through. you got to stay focused and you can't allow whatever those things that may be trying to hold you back or be negative or anything else stop you from achieving your goal. I truly, I totally agree. Not one second makes me feel like I would want something any different. That I remember, and then I'm going to get on with my questions, but I remember one time <laughs> I was in, in practice and uh, I was trying to check corn, Connell Lewis, Right. Which is not an easy task. I know you know that's not an easy task. You know, a Big Ten player, so you know, yeah, he can play a little bit. Yeah, so uh, uh, Spivey put me on him, and and I don't know why he put him on me. I was hoping he put you on him instead of me, but he put me on him. He, you know, Corn walked right to the basket and right past me like I was a matador. He just like Ole went right on and scored, and. Uh, uh, Coach Spivey said, if he burns you again, you're going to sit at the end of the bench. You know, you're not getting up practice. You know, uh, he undressed me like, you know, only Spivey can do. And so Corn looked at me and he laughed. And I was looking at him like, don't do it to me. You know, I'm I'm just a little fella just trying to make it in this world. Don't do it to me. And Corn just backed up and it looked like he was dancing like Michael Jackson with that basketball in between his legs and he took me right back to the hole. I didn't even wait for Spivey to say anything. <laughs> I just went to the sideline, sat down. You know, Corin told me later I was gonna be all right, but um that that's one of the, the things that I definitely remember about uh, you know, some of that cast tech uh, basketball. That was uh that was a lot of fun back then. Yep, it was. And, 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 the, and the, um, the funniest thing was all the recap of all the, um, the all of Spivey's antics. <laughs> yeah, I should say um, afterwards amongst the players. That was that was that was probably the probably the funnest time. Right. Know, especially just seeing him because he addressed somebody every day. Yes. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yes. So I, I need to get back and ask you, uh, so what inspired you to come back to Detroit after after law school? Well, you know, that's a good question because, you know, it was it was it was not as easy of a decision as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, being up in Minneapolis, as you know in Minneapolis, they have a, a large number of four to five hundred companies. And um I had a mentor who actually um, was one of the ones, him and, and, and Connell, actually. Connell and my mentor were the two that, and my mother, of course, uh, were the three that encouraged me to go to Minnesota the most. Um, I had some other schools, and and um, those three 
um, inspired in, 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 in some scholarships, of course, have all inspired me to go up there. Um, but when I was graduating, it, it, a lot of the Fortune 500 companies offered themselves um, to me. They offered opportunities for me to come work there in-house. Um, and then my mentor also was starting a, 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 a fund, um, and he was um, he offered me. Um, he couldn't offer me as much money. But I decided to come back to Detroit because at the time I decided to come back to Detroit, there was more um, African-Americans in business um, and, and, and in ownership than they were in, in Minneapolis. In fact, I couldn't name, other than one guy that owned a law firm, I couldn't name, he was the only person that I could name up in Minneapolis that actually owned his company. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, you know, the, the thought of being a vice president or senior vice president or even the CEO of a, of a, of a company was, um, was, you know, enticing. I, I always wanted to own my own. In fact, you know, the, the plan, the reason to go to law school was to use as an entree to, to go on a business of my own. Um, and so I, I went back to Detroit because I thought that the path for, for ownership um, and entrepreneurship was was easier and better uh, for me in the city um, than it was in the city. So I also see that, and I didn't uh, share this or with anyplace any place else. So I also see that uh, you're on the board for uh, First Independence also. So it, it sounds as if uh, it was important for you to follow at least a certain path in the beginning to uh, support or be a part of uh, African-American Enterprise is 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 that safe to say? Yeah, I, yeah. It was important for me to to be involved or engaged in, 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 in the African American business community, but in the business community as a whole. Um, I think that it's equally as important to be African American in the business community as a whole because we need more people of color um, in that community, as in, in the overall community as well, especially doing well. Um, you know, we can't, in my viewpoint, um, business is, a, is an extremely important factor in um, creating change um, within communities. Um, you look at Dan Gilbert and the impact that he's had yes. on the city of Detroit as a perfect example of that. I mean, nobody thought that being downtown um, or midtown was cool. Um, everybody was you know, saying turn off the lights on the city. And then Dan Gilbert comes along and says, this is a great opportunity. Uh, this is great. I'm going to, you know, recreate a whole, you know, ecosystem in downtown. And he does that. And now Detroit's the coolest place in the world to be, new restaurants and everything else. But it, it all happened because a business person decided that he, he wanted to invest in a certain area within a certain community and, and you look at in Grand Rapids the, the Vosses and the Van Andos did the same thing for downtown Grand Rapids and they had the same result so for me you know being African American in business um, is important both in the overall business community and also in the African American uh, community because that's how I believe I could have the greatest impact so I, I see also there was a good news article in Fortune about your company in December. 
Uh, can you tell us more about how that came about? Well, ICIC um, is a um, company that, or organization that uh, pays particular um, attention to um, business within underserved and inner city communities throughout the United States. And each year, they come up with a, um, a list of the fastest growing um, businesses in those um, inner city communities. And uh, we were fortunate to um, be named this year um, as the 40th uh, fastest growing firm in, in, one of, in one of those communities by ICIC. This is actually our second time uh, being on the ICIC list in 2017. Uh, we were on this as well, we were 51st, and then this year we were um, 40th. So we're, we're pleased about that. We're pleased about our growth. Um, my employees have done just an outstanding job in helping us get there and you know, we're striving to, to grow even more, and hopefully we'll be in the top five of ICIC at one point. Oh, I love it. So if you reach the top five, does that mean expanding to different areas of the United States? And if so, where would be the first place you, you'd be looking to branch out to? Well, actually, we have 11 offices throughout the United States now. Okay. So um, we, pro- we follow the clients. We don't really... Um, have a target place we want to go. We've had offices. We currently have an office in, um, in, in Miami Beach. Uh, we had offices in, in Anaheim, so all the weather, you know, destinations that you would be attracted to, we've been there, done that, um, or are doing it. Um, but so right now, you know, our, our office openings are based off of clients. I mean, once we get a client in a different area of the country or now, you know, we're looking at some things internationally as well in a different place in the world. And we're open an office to support um, our, our business there. So we don't really target. We've gone from that. I mean, we, we targeted um, places um, in 2008 um, when we went through, when the whole country was going through what I call a recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I made the wise decision at the same time, and I say this sarcastically, but... I made the wise decision at the same time to, to go full time in my business in, in the middle of the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to, you know, step back and, and kind of target areas that we thought were recession proof. Um, and, you know, fortunately, we were um, correct and we were able to um, grow the business um, and, and open up offices there. Um, and continue to do what we're doing. I mean, even now, less than 10% of um, our revenues are generated from our headquartered um, office, which is in Detroit. Um, the majority of our, our, our business is, 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 is developed outside of the city of Detroit and, and actually outside of the state of Michigan. So, you know, but now we flipped it over the last year, a couple of years where we no longer target areas Okay, we're going to send people or we're going to spend time here to grow business. We just go out and we try to get business and we then move into those areas and try to grow from within those areas since we are based off of that foundation that we already have. So do you think uh, getting started with your business in the middle of a recession to make it recession proof has, has helped you or had any impact with 
dealing with uh, being a business during a pandemic? Yes, it has because you just move. I mean, you stay in the same mode. I mean, we. I mean, the one thing that that, that I, as a business person, I've always um, strived to do is is to stay in the same mode, regardless to what levels of success we had, we've had. Um, it's important for me for us to continue to have the same attitude, which is that we got to continue to grow and that one bad client um, can take us out. So, you know, we, we treat every client like they're our only client. Um, we work every day to grow. Uh, we work every day to provide exceptional service that exceeds the expectations of our client. And we don't take this attitude that, you know, because we've had success that we can, you know, relax or, or take a step back from anything that we're doing. In fact, we press right now, I'm pressing even harder. So, you know, yes, starting in the middle of a recession, absolutely um, help with the pandemic because you, okay, you, it's kind of like being a pilot of a plane. Every time you get the plane, as far as, as long as you're, you know, following your list of checkoffs, you're going to fly the plane and you're going to, and it's going to be well. Um, but, you know, once you get that plane in the air and that turbulence starts coming, mm-hmm. you got to, you got to know what you're doing, but you also got to have certain instincts that kick in as well. Um, and, and that, and, and going through a business in the recession allowed us that when the pandemic hit, our certain instincts kicked off of what we needed to do in order not only to survive in it, but to, to also in it as well. The article also mentioned that you hire local Detroit youth interns every year. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what the interns, uh, what they do, what what your company is all about for a layman? Okay, so what they we generally um, hire a couple of interns each year. We bring them into our office. And we basically make them uh, work, and they get to uh, some. You know, some occasions they get to shadow me as well. Um, what I found, um, my wife and I talk about it all the time, is that a lot of times our kids aren't prepared um, for life and business or life within the office because they've never been exposed to it. So we take a, take it on our hands to expose our kids to life and business. And, and, and life within the office. You know, so we take a kid and we say, okay, no, you, you can't come dressed like that. You got to dress like this. You have to make this presentation to the internal staff and no one's going to help you with the presentation. You know, we're going to get you comments after the presentation is over, but you got to create it yourself. You have to do research. You have to come up with ideas. You have to gain confidence in being able to speak to in, in business meetings and all this other stuff because at the end of the day, if they don't get it from us, where are they going to get it? Mm-hmm. And so we look at it as a way to, you know, hire on some people um, in the future if, if it works out. You can't guarantee that because the base, that's going to be based on how we're doing, of course. But we more so look for it as a way to prepare our young people to be able to um, go into business or to um, go into a business environment 
and, and, and strive. I mean, I, for example, you know, we, we started high as a cost center management company, Marvin, and the thing about it is, as a college student, um, I worked two summers at Ford Motor Credit in their call center. And when I came out of, uh, out of graduate school, I worked a year between graduate school and law school. I worked um, for um, for a motor company. I was in their advanced leadership training program, but they put us in a call center for me because they wanted us to hear everything the customers were saying about their vehicles, both positive and negative. So when the opportunity presented itself for a, a minority-owned call center in Detroit, I was able to pull back on the experience that I had gained as a youth right. um, and say, I can do this. I just, and, and put my money up and use the skills that, that I had gained as a youth and, you know, my first year out of, out of, um, out of school to, 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 to start the business. So I knew the fundamentals. Now, I didn't know the details and all that. I had to hire experts and stuff like that. But the opportunity presented itself based off of, you know, internships and, you know, summer jobs and stuff like that. And I just wanted to, yeah, I think it's my responsibility, not wanted to. I think it's my responsibility to do the same for our kids. So what would you say the number one thing our Detroit youth uh, lack coming to work for you as an intern? In experience, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, kids just need, they just need exposure and experience. I mean, you know, I, a lot of them are, are very um, shy. They, they, they don't feel comfortable speaking um, in groups and things like that. And you can get into the, you know, the, the, the a lot of the, 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 minute things, I wouldn't say minute things, but particular things are about our kids. But our kids are different than any other kids. Our kids are smart. Um, our kids just need the training um, that, that other kids are getting as well. And one of the things that, that the other kids get training for is, um, is, is, is being in those environments. I, you know, we, we're about to go into Malcolm Godwell. Um, you know, we talked prior to about my, him being my favorite author. There's another book that he um, that he wrote, um, Outliners. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he 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 talked about in that book was the, the one of the reasons. The whole premise of the book was that you have people who are outliners. And the reason why they're outliners is because of the fact that they get a certain level of exposure and experience, mm. and if they don't have the opportunity to gain that experience, then they could never have accomplished what they've accomplished. And they use, you know, the birth dates of hockey players as an example. And because the ice is so limited and if they're born a certain time, they're actually able to play back. And because of the different sizes of the kids, they become the best and they become all stars and get to play more. And thus they get make it to the NHL. But one of the things that he mentioned in the book, was the fact that if you look at an inner city kid mm-hmm. versus a kid um, in, in a suburban kid, and you take the, those two kids um, preschool, 
and you have them test at that time, that they generally would test at the same level, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you put them both, you put both of those kids in preschool, and they go through preschool for the year, and they, then one kid goes to preschool in the city, another kid goes to preschool in the suburb, a fluid suburb. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, you test them again. Those kids test very similar, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens with the kid from the affluent area is that in the summertime, their experience is very different from the kid in the inner city. Come on. The inner city's kid experience does not include travel, trips to the museum, science uh, camps, all these other educational, continual educational things that happen for affluent kids, whereas the inner city kid, you know, does not get those that type of exposure and those type of opportunities. So if you, at the end of the summer, when you test them, that kid from the inner city is somewhat behind the kid that has had that continual education. And if you, over a 12-year period, continue to have that gap, then after 12 years, the gap is going to be significant. So, for me, um, it's important that we provide our kids with opportunities. And, and if you and if you ask me, one of the things that our kids lack is that is it's, it's, it's experience, it's exposure. And and if you give a kid experience and exposure, it not only helps them academically, but it helps them with their hope because you know it helps them understand that things are achievable. If, if I look at William Phillips every day, who came from nothing, um, and he has all this, then I can do it. You know, I, I can go ask him, how did he do it? And then I just, I do it. So that's why it's so important for us to, to, to give our kids, and if, if you ask me again anything that they're like, that's it, experience and exposure. So as I think of what you just said about uh, experience and exposure, uh, it does that that gap that achievement gap does widen uh, when they start to think about our kids when we talk about the uh, those conversations they have over those summers uh, and they uh, also inner city versus uh, affluent we're talking about the exposure to conversations about credit uh, conversations about government conversations about money and money working for you as opposed you working for to get money to attain it so all of the you're absolutely right that that lack of exposure is is the one thing that uh, definitely is a, a big challenge and as we are uh, as an educator we, we're really trying to work at creating a better system for our youth but we definitely have to do a lot more than what we've already done so i i know what you can just make one one point if mm-hmm. i could just say one thing it, it's something that you know i'm really interested in being a part of and, 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 and you know as we grow and as we gain more capital one of the things that i'm really going to focus on uh, my philanthropic um, endeavors on is that very thing you know um one of the, the, the biggest tragedies that has happened to the city, within the city of Detroit, in my viewpoint, is the closing of the community centers, all the community centers, and the impact that 
those closings have had on our communities. Um, you know, kids not having any place to go to not only for my athletic, I mean, because a lot of times people just focus on the athletic component of those community centers, but don't focus on some of the educational components that were there within as well. And if there was anything that we could do, in my viewpoint, to help, um, it would be to do everything that we can to open back up some of those centers and provide opportunities for our kids to continue to have education and athletic opportunities. Because I remember, you know, going to those community centers and you signed up, you know, yeah, you went to play basketball and all that, but you were going on a trip to the African-American Museum every year. Mm-hmm. You know, you were going to, on a trip to the Science Museum every year. Um, you were you were doing the DIA every year. You were doing educational, and you were taking some. You were doing some education. You had to do some of that in order to go play basketball. That's so, right. You know, um, I think that you know if we were to really say, what can we do? What is one of the, because I, I'm not an expert, educational expert. I don't even want to go try to try to go into all the complexities that you guys have over there. But I just think that. If we could just do something for these kids in the summer so that everything that you guys pour into them during the school year, at least somebody can pour something else into them during these summers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in addition to just, you know, internships as when they get in high school, uh, I think that that would, that would go a long way for, for our kids. And, and I think that that would, and, and in turn, go a long way for our community. And we got the setup. I mean, I think that, you know, I got to give VD uh, and, and the mayor some credit in that with the ideal of using some of the the schools as some of the uh, these centers during the summertime. Now, I haven't seen, you know, if that plan has actually come into fruition to the level that it should, but I think that that's a, a very good idea. And, 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 I think that that's something that we support, and I think that that's something that we should really push um, as well, you know, making sure that our kids have exposure to these community centers, especially if they're going to be in schools and especially if there's going to be an educational component um, for them during the summer times associated with it. I totally agree. We have quite a few schools that have closed that they could find a way that I don't know, uh, you know, the real estate history about it, but uh, I I definitely believe that there's plenty of spaces for them. I would love to see some programs where they learn how to play some lacrosse and and hockey and golf um, at a higher clip. I know we've got some, but at a higher clip. We are getting ready to transition from one point to the other in this podcast, and I, I think one of the segues will be what um, what William talked about as far as exposure. And so I'm going to tell a little uh, quick story about uh, exposure and, and how it relates to this um, David and Goliath piece that we're getting ready to uh, delve into. As we were doing the show prep, I asked him some things about books that he liked and music that he liked. And, and he said, David Goliath, uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, and I said, oh, okay, that's great. So there are several essays within this book, and one of the essays is about um, a, a father who coaches 
his uh, daughter's uh, team. And uh, I'm going to let William tell you a little bit more about that. But as I read this story about this father and these girls, it, the first thing that came to my mind was the time that I, and it was a David and Goliath moment for me as well. Uh, I was about 10 years ago and I was coaching my son's team. The Crown Act. Let me tell you, I absolutely love this episode. It made me think about a time I was in the 10th grade and my English teacher who was white insinuated to a classroom full of young black ladies that braids were was not a professional hairstyle. And while it didn't make me feel good and I didn't like it, I was already conditioned and I thought, you know, she's right. The majority of my life, I've been straightening my hair for job interviews or presentations or any other occasion where I don't want to appear too ethnic. So this Crown Act is necessary. It puts a name to what's been happening to Black women ever since we were brought to this country. It validates that my hair is not where the problem lies. This is an absolutely must-hear podcast. Marvin, you did a great job. And Dr. Afia, thank you for your work. Thank you for affirming us and our uniqueness. Keep doing your thing. And uh, it was a rec league team, so nothing grew and in Flat Rock. And I'm trying to tell you all of these things to provide a little bit of context so you can kind of get an idea of, of my expectation of what I thought I was going, what was going to happen and what actually did happen. So Flat Rock is a community. It is a, a new budding uh, area, Flat Rock, Gibraltar, Brownstown. There are new homes, new divisions, and it is a working class uh, community that is primarily uh, not African-American. Uh, at the time of this uh, uh, occurrence, I want to say maybe might have been between 3 and 7 percent African-American. But it's a growing population, and there's this minister who's this, uh, the, he's the, the rec uh, superintendent guy. He's got all these great things going on, and, and so he's got this program with uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids flowing through this program. So I signed my son up so he could play basketball with this group. I'm so excited that he's getting ready to, to play. And so they said they need more coaches. I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll do this, no big deal. And I get my roster, and it's right about this time of year, too. So we get the roster right after um, Thanksgiving. We have our coaches' meetings. They tell us what types of practice we can have. It's a rec league, so you only get one practice uh, an hour uh, for the week, and then the games are on Saturdays. So I get this team together, and, and I, I'm, I'm – putting together my plan of action for the, the practice. And I've got a series of dribbling drills and, and, and plays, and I'm, I'm just ready to rock and roll. So one of the dribbling drills uh, we had had the kids taking the ball between their legs and around their back and just getting ready for dribbling with both hands. A, a simple uh, skill, but it is a developed skill. So most of the kids couldn't even dribble, um, and dribbling, passing, shooting was extremely challenging. And when we got to the dribbling drill, uh, one of the kids looked at me and said that uh, this is too much. We we don't. This is a rec league. We 
kids in the third grade don't dribble with between their legs and around their back. You know, this is <laughs> this is what you do it, coach. You, this is it's too too advanced for us. And I'm like, okay. So when we play the first game and the first game in the rec league and the first game and we lose pretty pretty bad. Uh, but since it's this teaching league, there are a lot of things that they did not, uh, we didn't have to go through. So there was no full court press uh, for the full game, only a certain amount of time. But the other team that we played definitely understood the the vocabulary. They understood uh, plays. They understood concepts at a much higher clip than my group of boys. So I I did what I only what I know how to do best. I took the the group and I I tried to take them and and all put them all the way in the deep end and so we could kind of figure this thing out. So when I say take them to the deep end, I had at the time I was a uh, assistant principal and I had some connections to some assistant principal in Detroit and I had some connections to some uh, different uh, programs in the city. And so they had this uh, Martin Luther King Day tournament, uh, basketball tournament. And it was, you know, third and fourth graders in Highland Park. So I've got this band of kids uh, and parents, uh, and I've got two black kids on this team, a total of 12. And we go down to Highland Park to play in this uh, in this league game, this tournament. The kids, while we're driving down, they're looking through the neighborhood, and I see you smiling, William. So you know what? Uh, I just told you what our community looked like. It's brand new homes. This is new subdivisions. These are you know, both parents work and and uh, make a nice. Uh, Typically, they made a, a pretty decent wage, this entire community. Not everybody's on the same level, but you know what I mean. But when you go to Highland Park, when you go to HP, you know what that looks like as well. So I've got these, I've got a group of, of white kids and two black kids, and they're looking and they're, they're looking at these dilapidated homes. And we get to the gym, and the gym where we play uh, our, our games is in a, a relatively new rec center it's several hundred million dollars uh of a, a rec center with a, a pool and um a track and and weights and everything and we pull up to this gym that looks like it might have been an old ch a church at some time it's pretty dark it's pretty pretty gloom and um one of the kids looks and says we're the only white white people here and it's like, yeah, but it's basketball. It's all the same. We're just here to learn how to play. Boy, those boys from uh, Highland Park, they had uh, uniforms that didn't match. They Pants, shorts too big. Shoes looked like they might have been all torn up. But we played, and we played down because the, 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 the guy who was in the group said, I'm going to let you play down. So I had majority fourth graders on my team. There were third graders on my team, but mostly fourth graders. We played a team that was all third graders. Phil, they drug us up and down that court all day long. They drug us. Those kids, and I'm telling you, this little boy, he looked like one of the Bebe's kids. He must have been about two feet tall. He was dribbling behind his back, between his legs, and he was dancing with the basketball. 
And, uh, you know, so I take the kids back and, and I'm like, you know, this was tough. It was really tough. And, and I was hoping that there was some lessons and I'm feeling very dejected because I was hoping that I could use this as a, a teachable moment in practice. I get them back and, and I, and in between games, I see my kids talking to the other kids from Highland Park, asking them, how do you dribble a ball around your back and between your legs? Now, this is uh, what I'm going to say, David and Goliath, but I think it's a, a lot of lessons about race and adults. It's about uh, competition. It's about a lot of different things. But I was shocked. I didn't, I didn't uh, tell them to do that. It's also about exposure, right? My kids told me before we went there, it could happen. But when they saw it, then when we got back to uh, back home, there were kids uh, in practice trying to take it around their back between their legs. And that season, we didn't win the championship or anything, but we played so much better defense that year. Like we beat a lot of teams that we really should not have beat and beaten simply because they learned how to play basketball. They were exposed to basketball at a different level. They saw things that they didn't believe that they could do being done by kids that were younger than them, and it made a heck of a difference. So um, I, I wanted to share that as before we get – it might have taken a little long. I hope you didn't fall asleep, uh, yeah. Phil. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> but uh, that, was, that was interesting. So uh, I, I got a couple of, of quotes – uh, and I don't, it, speaks it speaks to you know it speaks to exposure to experience what we were just talking about. I definitely think uh, for anyone, I think it's a, one of the most humbling experiences in the world. It's to be a coach of, and I've had an opportunity. I've been blessed uh, to be able to coach uh, my son first, uh, first, uh, third, the fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way up, and and my oldest son, I, I coached the AAU uh, tournament. Uh, with the AAU team, uh, the Dragons, uh, many years ago, with, that was a high school group. So I, on, so I've had a chance to work with young men on so many different levels, and I think it's a, a wonderful teaching experience. I, I learned a lot, uh, what not to do and what to do from Coach Spivey. Um, there's a, a lot of, you definitely got to love on these kids nowadays. The kids are a little different than they were when you talked about preparedness from Coach Spivey, you weren't getting ready to learn the, the preparedness in front of him. You were going to have to do the dirty work behind the scenes. And that's something that uh, I just don't think that the kids nowadays do. And, you know, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all from what you see, but it's a, it's a whole brand, a brand new type of kid now that. Uh, Yeah. And and uh, you know, we gotta do a better job. If we wanna see our kids better or or different behaviors, then we gotta do a better job of of, of training them. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. So I, I pulled out I a couple I don't blame the kids, I blame the parents. Yeah, I do too. I, I do too. I and in no way the kids come to you 
tabula rasa. They're, they're a clean slate, and they all have big doe eyes, and they're all excited about everything. So, um, I, and the coaches. I blame the coaches. Yeah, and the coaches are not teaching coaches anymore either. I think you got to definitely take the time out to be a teaching coach. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a real quick story on coaching um, and, and, and the impact that it had. Uh, when I was up at the University of Minnesota uh, Law School, as you know, uh, our, our Connell Lewis happened to be one of my closest friends, was up there as well. He played for you at the University of Minnesota, and as I said earlier, was one of the influences to um, get me to actually apply to Minnesota and, and really push for me that once I got uh, once I got in. Um, he was extremely close with Coach Clem Haskins. Uh, he played for Coach Clem Haskins. And one of the things that Clem Haskins did when he first got there, he was, he was coach up there for over 10 years. One of the things he got up, he did when he got up there, he said, No car, I gotta I gotta coach I gotta I gotta train these coaches. And so Clem Haskins spent a significant amount of time having coaches clinics throughout Minnesota when he got there. And the, and the premise or the, the, the reasoning for his coaching, his um, coaching clinics and, and training the coaches was that he could not, he was tired of depending upon going to Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, you know, Pittsburgh and every place else to find talent. He said, I have to grow talent here in Minnesota. Mm. And the only way I can grow talent in Minnesota is create people who can teach these kids how to play. And I'm going to teach these people how to coach so they can teach these kids how to play. At one point, I could have a, a litany of kids that are coming through that I can actually uh, recruit. And so, unfortunately, you know, Clem was able to, you know, get a little taste of it. But if you look at, I challenge you to look at over the past 15 years, um, I, I, I came out of Minnesota uh, in the middle 90s, um, late 90s, mid 90s, 96. Um, look from, uh, Clem was out of there a couple of years later. I would challenge you to look from 2000, let's say, let's start 2003 to now, the amount of college players, NBA players that come out of the Minneapolis cities area. And then compare that to the amount of them that came out before. And it all came back to Clem Haskins putting the time into training these guys and getting them prepared. I mean, arguably one of the best um, college basketball players, especially freshmen in the country right now, is from Minneapolis and Jalen Scruggs. Mm-hmm. It all came back to, it all goes back to Clint. Yeah. Taking the time to train. Again, exposure, training, growth. So those coaching uh, clinics, he was having those with high school coaches in the, in the area? The high school coaches and junior high school coaches. He opened it up to anybody. And he just went throughout the area having coaches clinics. And now you look at how much talent is coming out of me. You got all types of talent that comes out. of you have top 20 players, you have three to four top, I mean, top 100 players, you have three to four top 100 players a year come out of Minneapolis. 
Uh, I love Coach Haskins, and I know Clem. Uh, yeah, and I know uh, I know Corn did too. I was, you know, after I heard that he uh, committed to go there, I was I was really excited to start to watch uh, or attempt to hear more about uh, Big Ten football out uh, basketball outside of uh, Michigan, Michigan State, which is uh, you know what we in in that time frame is is what's exposed to us with uh with our channels i always wanted to know how he was doing i knew he was baking somebody i knew he was cooking somebody <laughs> so i got i've got a couple of uh quotes from the book just a couple of statements and i'm just going to read them and and then just ask you what are some of your thoughts and and when i ask you your thoughts i want you to you know talk about some of your own personal life and and professional life as it relates to uh, this story of, of David and Goliath and this basketball coach, uh, Viv- Vivek, how do you say his Vivek. name? Vivek. Vivek. Yeah, and, and you you said you've had some dealings with him, so I'm interested to hear about him. So the first uh, part is, for some reason, this is a very difficult lesson for us to learn. We have, I think, a very rigid and limited definition of what an advantage is. We think of things as helpful that actually aren't and things of other and think of other things as helpful that in reality leave us stronger and wiser. Part one of David and Goliath is an attempt to explore the consequences of that error. When we see the giant, why do we automatically assume the battle is his for the winning? And what does it take to be that person? who doesn't accept the conventional order of things as a given, like David or Lawrence of Arabia, or for that matter, Vivek and his band of nerdy Silicon Valley girls. What do you think about that? Uh, You know, that was one of the the things that kept me glued to um, uh, reading um, that passage because um, everything that he's saying is so very true. If you ever you go into something, um, a lot of times people go into ventures or they go into a situation and they automatically assume because someone has more education or someone has more money or more experience that that person, individual organization, uh, I mean, that, that individual organization has a, a, an advantage over uh, you. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, and one of the things that the, 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 a lack of resources or, or, or something like that that causes is creativity. Um, and, and also it causes you to work pretty hard. Um, you know, going back to when the recession happened, you know, and us starting the business, us looking or being in Detroit at that time when the recession happens, you recall, about, you know, the, 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 but for the bailout, the auto industry and the entire economy in southeastern Michigan would have collapsed. So it was horrible. Um, and, and and during that time, what we said is we're not even going to lose the business. We had to be creative um, because there wasn't any business here. We said we're not going to lose the business here. We're not going to spend any time on business here. We're going to find what we call recession-proof areas in order to look for business. Um, and those respective group areas we identified as one, having a population of half a million people, 
to having state government there or very close there too. Three, having a large university there. And then four, having four to 500 companies as well. So we looked at Madison, Wisconsin. We looked at Austin, Texas. We looked at Atlanta, Georgia. We looked at Sacramento, California. We looked at you know those areas that fit those criterias, and that's where that's the, those are the areas where we basically launched out to to find clients, and it helped us. I mean, we were able to find clients in some of those communities or communities close to them, and basically you know take our business from where it was at then to where it is now, which is ten to twelve times larger than it was then. So. The challenge, the 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 the, the Goliath um, in the room um, made us become more creative. It made us become more flexible. It made us determined to win and, and, and figured out a way to win. And, and in a lot of instances as a business, we had to do the same thing. I mean, every business that we've gained, we've taken from a larger company. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and um, you know, our, our model right now is you know, small enough to care, but large enough to get the job done. I mean, so we look at, you know, being our size as actually an advantage mm-hmm. right now because we're a lot more nimble, we're, we can change, we can do a lot of things that larger companies can't do. Um, we don't have the resources that they have, so sometimes they beat us on costs or they may beat us on some things because they have some resources, but we have a lot more flexibility and we have a lot more personal touch that we can give so we we go into all situations saying okay how can we win not necessarily feeling defeated i'm going i love that i really do it you the creativity um from this book i was glued to it the whole time this particular essay in and of itself uh i just saw myself as a as an african-american male really trying to figure out how to to defeat the giant in so many ways is part of how my life feels. Like, it seems like we always have some sort of obstacle that we have to uh, uh, beat, and you can't always beat fire with fire. You know, you you got to find different ways, different strengths within yourself. And you're right, it doesn't always come with, uh, you know, being the, the... going to the, the biggest school or, or having the most amount, amount of money, a lot of it cares um, uh, is other ways. So the, the next statement, I think, also brings or lifts that up. It says, and this is the, uh, they defended all 94 feet of the basketball court. The full court press is legs, not arms. It supplants ability with effort. It is basketball for those who, like Lawrence Bedouin, are quite unused to formal warfare, whose assets are movement, endurance, individual intelligence, and courage. I see you smiling over there. Yeah, because Vivek, uh, Vivek actually, he was, he was teaching, he was coaching the girls' team. Vivek, um, as you may or may not know, is the... Uh, Owner of the Sacramento Kings, um, and this is before um, he took over ownership of the Kings, and he and he um, coached his girls' team, and he 
realized that his girls' team did not have the talent um, that the other girls' team um, in their league had. And he had to come up with a plan in order to um, overcome the talent challenges that they had. And one of the things that he, 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 he saw was that regardless to the level of talent um, that the other teams had, all of them had had um, challenges when it came to pressure. Um, and so rather than, you know, playing a slow-down game or playing a traditional game, he decided to um, have his girls trap and press the entire game, uh, which is, you know, quite frankly, a very tiring um, thing to do, um, a very risky thing to do because if people are calm and, and you can handle the pressure, you can get a lot of layups out of it. Uh, but it was it was his way of, of, of equaling things up. Um, he saw, you know, uh, just as David saw um, something that he thought he could be Goliath with, um, he saw opportunity that he thought he could be better teams with um, or better or more talented teams. I can't say better because he beat them. So right, his right. team was better because they won, but more talented teams, which was pressure. And um, it worked. Um, it wasn't popular. The, the other, you know, coaches and parents and everybody else didn't like it because it was embarrassing, to be very honest. It was rough. It, it was it was not something that was normal and attractive basketball. It was ugly. Um, but it was it was it was useful for him and and, and, it, and it worked for him. So, you know, and and as you said before, you know, when you're in a, and you're in a situation where you may not have an advantage, you got to look for ways to overcome. And 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 sometimes they're not going to be popular. They're not going to be the prettiest thing to do. They're not going to be the traditional thing to do. But they're going to be impactful and and effective. And you got to you got to have the guts to do it. Regardless to everybody else, you still got to have the guts to get it done. And, um, you know, a lot of times we allow peer pressure or, or norms to prevent us from doing what we need to do to be successful. I, I love it. That's right. Decided that he didn't want to do that. I love it. That's, you're absolutely right. Just get out and do it. And yeah. as we were reading this, uh, it made me think of this Louisville. Uh, there's two things that. Uh, that that passage brought to my mind. There was, uh, and I can't remember his name. I I didn't have this in my notes, but there was a a, a coach, a black coach from Arkansas that played. Uh, huh? Yeah, no, no, uh, Nolan Richardson. Yes, I Nolan Richardson. On Christmas, on the day after Christmas, I, I, I experienced '94. Oliver Miller. Yes. Uh, Shoot his name. Um, Corliss. Five NBA players on that team. We played them too. Oh. Now, we didn't play them at the University of Arkansas. We were fortunate that they they had a tournament in Little Rock. They moved the tournament to Little Rock, which ain't a big difference. But yeah, <laughs> you know. And then the first time you take out the ball, you see that big Oliver Miller with them long arms. <laughs> and, and, and 200, 300 pounds trying uh, to look past and you know that you're going to throw the ball inbounds to a teammate who's automatically going to get trapped 
Yeah, I, I dealt with that. Yeah, I dealt with that. Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember watching uh, that type of basketball, and I loved it. I think that it definitely exposes all your weaknesses. Uh, and and the other was a, a Louisville team that I think they wanted a, not too long ago with uh, Rick Pitino. And they talk about it in the book Rick Pitino was a, a proponent of of this press. And I don't really remember his uh, U.K. presses like I remember this Louisville press because it just seemed like I didn't know any of those kids' names. And individually, they might not have been all that great, but, boy, they put the heat on. I think they won the tournament. That This this was just a couple of years ago. The kid broke his leg. You, you remember that? Do you remember that, team? Yeah, um, I remember his name. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. I would actually, at that Final Four, uh, when, when, when Louisville won that, it actually stayed at the same hotel. Oh. And Patino's son, who was a coach at Minnesota, got the job in Minnesota while we were at the Final Four. Oh. Mm. And, and, and so we're all up in the um, in the club um, at the hotel, club level, where they give you the free breakfast and stuff like that. And the mother, uh, Patino's wife and the mother, Ricky, um, is over there um, mispronouncing Wazetta because they were looking for places for, for Junior had just got the job. Oh, okay. For places for, uh, for them to live. And she was she was torturing Wazetta. <laughs> I mean, absolutely torturing it. And to a point where I just got up and I just said, excuse me, ma'am, I'm a Minnesota grad. Congratulations to your son. It's Wazetta and Edina. Not what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me and the wife, you know, Julia's wife looked and with a little laugh and smile was like, thank you. Mm, mm. <laughs> and uh, and asked me how I thought about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember the kid where he broke his leg and yeah. the skin and everything. Yeah. That was a pressure. But also, Shaka Smart. Yeah, that's right. Now, which I'm surprised because he hasn't done it in Texas as much. He was very successful in, in pressing. Um, Is that Wichita State? And no, he was at VCU. VCU, that's right, VCU. He was at VCU before, and that was one of the things that helped him a lot uh, was pressing, um, playing that pressing type um, defense. So, yeah, it works. It takes people out there, the rhythm. It speeds the game up. It does a lot of things to, to, to be disruptive. And, you know, and being in business – when you don't have an advantage, you got to do some. You got to do some things to be disruptive. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I loved all of that basketball. I, the last one, and then I'm gonna let you get out of here. I, I've held you entirely too much from from doing what you do. Uh, again, I'm gonna say thank you so much for for spending some time with me today. Uh, I, I think I'm gonna have another cast tech grad pretty soon. Uh, as a, a guest, I'm working on uh, Carol Gist, uh, the former Miss USA. She's uh, agreed to come on, say it loud. She's, I'm, I'm hoping it's the next one you'll hear after this one. Um, but like I said, thanks. And, and that green and white uh, is definitely the cast tech, one of the, uh, the finest in the city. And I have a lot of fond memories. Um, so, like I said, thank you, and let me get to this last one let you do your thing. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about the ways that prestige and resources 
and belonging to elite institutions make us better off. We don't spend enough time thinking about the ways in which those kinds of materials, material advantages limit our options. Vivek stood on the sidelines as the opposing team's parents and coaches heaped abuse on him. Most people would have shrunk in the face of that kind of criticism. What do you think about that part? Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, because of the style of play he had, it was ugly. Um, it was anonymous, it was embarrassing, um, and taxing on the opposing teams. You know, he wasn't popular, um, but it was impactful and effective. Um, and in a lot of instances, you know, people that have advantage think that just because they they have the advantage, other people are supposed to bow down to it and just accept it and, 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 and do what they need to do and, and take a loss and just move on from it. Um, and that's not the case. I mean, he just decided that I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to flip this thing and as ugly and as taxful and as embarrassing it may be to you, it's helping me win. And, um, that's how we have to be, um, I think, um, in business and in life in general. I mean, you know, we spend a lot of time, a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about, you know, not having certain advantages or certain opportunities or, or things like that. And as, as we talked about before we started the podcast, I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on that. I, I, we got to make our own way. Uh, we got to figure out how we can even the game up. And, 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 and we got to do what's necessary so that we can win. And if we don't win, at least we can put ourselves, put our kids in a position so that they can win. Um, and so, you know, never go into a situation saying it's impossible. You know, with God, all things are possible. And and so, that's the way I look at it. And if and if I'm with God, all things are possible. Then then God's going to show me how to figure out how to make it possible. And and I got to be willing. I got to have the courage and the faith and the willingness to go through whatever is necessary to make it possible as well. I can't just shrink or, or give up or say it's impossible or don't even try, you know. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I encourage everybody else because if we if we just did what was possible um, or shrunk or anything like that, we wouldn't be where we are right now. We have a, we have a contract right now. I'm not going to say who the client is, but the, the, the vendor before us was Kelly which is one of the largest staffing firms in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're now the vendor. We're one of the vendors. I mean, you know, Kelly was a sole vendor. They, they, the client decided to not renew with Kelly and, and, and go with a couple of vendors, um, have multiple vendors, but we're one of them. I mean, it's not like it's 100 vendors. It's only like a couple of us, mm -hmm. but we're one of them. But we wouldn't have even went after it if we didn't believe we could get it. We just worked and figured out a way to position ourselves to to get it. And, no, and we started with this client with a very small contract. You know, not in the area, not in the space that we are a vendor in right now. We were doing regular type staffing for them, you know, administrative type staffing and labor staffing for them. This is 
the staffing is within the healthcare sector. But the job we did in in the administrative and labor staffing led to them coming to us, although we had the contract in that area saying, we're having a problem over here in healthcare. Can you help us find these people? Yes. The answer is always yes, we could do it. Mm -hmm. And we did it. And because we were able to do it, when the new contract came up and it was time to bid, they said, you guys should bid on this. You know, and we did, and we won. And so, and we beat others. Goliath. Right, you beat Goliath. And, and, and so you just gotta, you can't, you, you're not gonna beat anything if you don't believe that you can. The first step is believing that you can, and then following that up with figuring out a way traditional, non-traditional, as long as it's legal, how to do it. Now, Vivek didn't do anything illegal. He didn't, you know, hit girls that were too old. He didn't, you know, get girls to hit people and punish people and, and stuff like that. He just looked at the other games, discovered a weakness, and exposed that weakness, and continued to expose that weakness, regardless of the fact that his exposure of the same was not possible. Absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, like I said, this story, I we could probably talk for, uh, I mean, for a long time. There are a lot of different essays within this book about uh, the David beating Goliath in many ways and uh, showing itself in, in various forms, you know. So you don't always have to beat the giant at his game doing it the exact way that he does it. Uh, you know, when I think about Vivek, I think he was extremely smart to look at uh, all of the facets of what the game entails and utilizing things within the rules that had not been executed much to gain himself an advantage. And that's really what this life is all about. Use what you have to get what you want within within the rules and and uh, and you'll definitely come out. Uh, on the winning end so I'm going to end on that I'm going to move on like I said we've got some other things going on this has been a, a incredible week a lot of stuff has gone on I'm pretty sure uh, you've got uh, you're pretty exhausted from hearing all of what's transpired in our government with uh, with the president and and the capital but um, what I also hear in your voice is you seem to be uh, steeped in in your faith and uh, I, that's something that I, I love that we lean on. And uh, I definitely want you to continue doing that. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the foundation. That's, that's where it all comes from. Yes, yes. And we're going to have to find a way to get you to one of those uh, Wisconsin games. Maybe if we, they can make it to the Rose Bowl this next year, we can have a conversation. I'd love for for sit down and have a chat with you and, and Jalen about uh, the good old days. No problem. No problem. As I told you before, I'm, I'm I've, I frequent um, Madison a lot, um, so I'm, I'm used to Badger Nation. Being at the Badgers, I know what the the, the fifth quarter is. I know about, you know everything that you guys do um, over at Camp Randall. So I don't have a problem with um, with, with hanging out with Badgers. Um, in fact, you're gonna get a little in a little trouble because at the beginning of this. Um, uh, podcast, you said go Gophers. I, I'm 
price sheet, your son ain't gonna be very happy with that. So. I know. I'm gonna have to, you know, end it with something else. I'm gonna have to say jump around and go badges for sure. On Wisconsin. Uh, right? On Wisconsin for sure. Right. You know, on Wisconsin. Uh, but we all it's, it's a bunch of good people, man, in, in, in Madison. A bunch of good people um, at the University of uh, uh, Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned from, from being up there and dealing with them a lot is once a badger, always a badger, and they take care of their badgers, man. So, you know, your son is in a, in a great spot around a, a lot of great people. Um, um, at a great school, so I, I couldn't be more more happy. I I appreciate that, and and I I also say now that I'm thinking, and thank you for that. Thank you so much. Uh, I also say it's it's I'm able to say that also because we got the axe this year. So. Oh my God. <laughs> we get it back. We get it back. We're gonna roll that boat. That's a that's another conversation. Thanks a lot, Will. I appreciate yeah. it, man. Okay. Take care and uh. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. All right, God bless you. Take care, brother. Bye bye.